If you would, please open up with me in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 8. Um, if you don't uh, didn't bring a Bible, uh, no worries. We do have Bibles uh, on uh, and in our pews in front of you. And uh, again, say this sometimes for visitors, uh, but also for members, but y'all have heard it before. If you don't have a Bible and you need a Bible, that Bible is for you. And so don't, don't worry, just let us know and we'll put another one back uh, there where you got yours from. Uh, we would love to do that. And so if you need one, feel free to take one. Uh, uh, I believe that at the Pew Bible for Zechariah 8 might be on page 796. Somebody scowl at me or shake your head or something if that is wrong. Uh, while y'all are opening up there to Zechariah chapter 8, remember that we're in this sermon series, Homecoming and Heart Checks. Homecoming because, quite literally, uh, the people of God are coming home. They're coming home from exile. They're, they're back. Uh, they're back in uh, the promised land. They're back in Jerusalem. And, well, um, they kind of need a heart check, which is that second part. Because as they've come, uh, they uh, have not quite fully realized uh, why the Lord, in His providence and divine mystery, had sent them away from their home for a time. That time being around 70 years. And so, as they're coming back, homecoming, things are not the same, and in that change, in that difference, uh, right in that very uncomfortable and very awkward feeling that we get Right there, right in that change, is where God places his people and brings in Haggai and Zechariah. And so we're here in Zechariah. We've made it through what many would say is the crazy part of Zechariah, right? But the, the, uh, the picture prophecies of Zechariah chapter 1 through 6-ish. And, and now we're into this narrative flow and feel where we have Zechariah revealing what God is saying to the people. And this morning, uh, we see something wonderfully beautiful, and it has to do with hope. Hope. What is hope? An easy definition that I found from a, it's not my own, it's, it's from a commentary by a man named Dr. R.C. Sproul. He's sort of, he's like somewhat Christian famous, right? You can't say famous because like outside of the Christian world, he's, he's not famous. But uh, he is fairly well known as a commentator, as a preacher, as a teacher. And this is what he says about hope. Hope is not taking a deep breath and hoping things are going to turn out all right, right? That's, you know, we in the world, right? I, I hope I'm going to be okay this morning, right? It's a tight schedule. I hope I'm okay. That, that is the world's definition, and it's a working definition for us sometimes. But when we talk about biblical hope, this is what he says. It is assurance that God is going to do what he says. Assurance that God's going to do it. What he says God will do. The main point this morning that we're going to see is that God gives his people hope. In other words, he gives us that assurance and he does it in some remarkable ways. We'll see it in Zechariah 8 verses 1 through 8. But first, let us pray for the reading of God's holy word. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you. Thank you for this word. We know, oh, Holy Spirit, that you take this word and you use it to change us. And so God, here in this room, those who are worshiping with us, God, would you change us by your word? Only you can do it. And so Lord, do it, we pray. 
In Jesus' name, amen. This is Zechariah 8, starting with verse 1. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of God, it stands and remains forever. And we can give thanks. If I recall, last Sunday I said that even though it seemed like the text was a little negative, that we had a very positive message. Well, this week we've got a very positive word that is still very positive, And we'll see it in some beautiful ways. Remember our main point. God gives his people hope. Three ways that we'll see it. Hope through action. Hope uh, by God's promises, and then hope in the capital H, homecoming. You'll see what I mean when we get there. First, then, we see God give his people hope through action. Verses 1, 2, and 3. What kind of action? Verse 2 tells us uh, <laughs> jealousy and wrath. This is what the Lord of hosts says. I'm jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Usually, for God's people, jealousy and wrath don't remain positive things, right? Uh, jealous, if you hear that word, jealousy, it's typically warped into wanting things that are not ours, right? I'm jealous of that, of X, Y, or Z. Oh, I'm jealous of him. You know, he has this. I want that. Uh, that jealousy, right? And then, of course, like children, wrath is what happens when we don't get our way. It's being, if... I wanted to use a colloquial kind of worldly term. Oh, we're just getting super angry, right? You know, that's what wrath is, right? It's, it's when you're really, really mad, right? You know, and, and that, I mean, that is how we use that word wrath. But, but again, in the scriptures, we have to be very careful because for God, these things are not so. That is not what it means when we see that God is a jealous God. And that is not what it means when we see that God is a wrathful God. God. It's easy for us to go there, but we must not let our minds and ourselves take something and begin to interpret it in what we think, because the scriptures tell us exactly what those things are. God embodies a perfect jealousy and a perfect wrath, where his actions are not only justified, but expected. I've been trying to think through an illustration that would do justice for this in the worldly realm. And I 
I think I've got one. I think that we would still sin in the process of this, but I think that you'll get what I mean. If I were to come home uh, from work or from somewhere else and, uh, and walk into my home and uh, there was another man there and that man said, hey, Jeremiah, uh, I am taking your wife and I'm taking your children and uh, they're mine now. So, uh, no, that's, that's not how it works. So, no, 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 that's how it works. I'm, I'm, that, they're mine now. This isn't, this isn't your wife or your children. They're, they're mine. And I say, no, no, that's not right. Because I am jealous for my wife and I am jealous for my children and I would be wrathful against one seeking to take them away from me and I would be justified to do so. Uh, that, that makes sense to me and I hope it does to you and that's exactly what's happening with God and his people. The world has sought to take the wife of the Lord Jesus Christ because we know who the bride is, right? We see throughout scripture that the bride of Jesus Christ is the people of God. We see that God the Father, that the people are his children. And what the world does, our own hearts being a part of that, our own sin, what the world does in our own sin, and Satan himself seek to do all of these things colliding, is to walk into God's house and say, oh, I'm taking your wife and children. And God says, oh, oh no. I am a jealous God, and I am a wrathful God for my people. They are mine. They are not yours. And that is very good news for us. Not only does God act in perfect jealousy and wrath here, but he also moves in action. He, he is actively dwelling in the midst of Jerusalem. And we see that transition in verse 3 because we see the countenance of the Lord, his action in general. And then we see this movement of the Lord in verse 3. And, and y'all know in one sense, God is in all places at all times, right? If we wanted to use the omnis, well, he's omnipresent, right? God is a spirit and he is in all places at all times and if you wanted to use the children's catechism we can't see him right that's what it said we we can't see him he doesn't have a body like us and and so God is in all places but that does not mean that he is actively present in all places he is certainly present but he is actively present in some places uh, Eric Moody uh, our elder this morning in worship, other elders along with myself, uh, uh, David Setzer who has been here, the ministers before, uh, we do something in worship. Sometimes the choir does it. Uh, sometimes we do it via music. Other times we do it just by prayer. That's the invocation. You see it in the bulletin. The invocation. What are we doing? We are beseeching God to be particularly present in a place that he is already present. God's always here, but we are praying in this moment that he would be actively present here for us, working his will in our lives as we worship. By God's Holy Spirit, when we fully realize this, that, that God really acts on behalf of his people, that is when hope begins to bear out. That is the expectation that God will act 
in our lives. You know, uh, this is a, it's not a guilt trip, but it's going to seem like one. You know, when we wake up in the morning, even myself, it's not like we wake up on a Sunday morning and say, you know what? I know for a fact that God's going to work in my heart this morning at worship. How many of y'all did that? It's just, it's, it's a little bit foreign to us to think that way. But that's what his word tells us. That, that as we come together as the people of God formally, invoking his name that he might come, obeying his word, even in all of these multitudinous, wonderful, miraculous, and beautiful things and ordinances that we see like baptism and the Lord's Supper, like the proclamation of the word and prayer and singing, all of that, we should expect that God will work in our hearts. And when we don't, if you wanted to go to another place in Scripture, we either accidentally or maliciously, if we're doing it on purpose, quench the Holy Spirit. Typically, it's not malicious. Usually, it's accidental. And yet, as God opens us up to this reality, we begin to see that God gives His people hope through action, being actively present where we are. Secondly, God gives his people hope by his promises. Verses 4, 5, and 6. Uh, what kind of gas station goer are you? What kind of gas station goer are you? My grandmother was a fully E, out of gas, running on fumes gas station goer. If her car wasn't sputtering and rolling in, not on fumes, off. She wasn't going to the gas station. And I think it scarred me because I most typically am not a fully on E gas station goer. I'm more of a half tank kind of guy. Uh, but um, that's what my grandmother would do. Uh, she would roll in sputtering on E and from then on out my parents would testify that on any trip we would get to about that halfway mark and I'd say, Mom, Mom, I think we're low on gas. <laughs> no, we got to have a tank. No, I think we're low. We might need to pull in. Pull in and get some gas, right? Uh, that's what I sometimes think. Well, uh, let's think about our spiritual gas tank. Is your spiritual gas tank running on E? You feel like your life is kind of like my grandmother, just trying to sputter in, right, uh, to the spiritual gas pump. What's your spiritual gas tank like? Verses 4, 5, and 6, and those like it in the scriptures, they are the kind of verses that we need to hear if we are feeling kind of sputtery in our spiritual life. Like our tank might be uh, low enough that we're not picking up anything but fumes. Historically speaking, when we come to verses 4, 5, and 6, the old men and women of God's people would not remember Jerusalem's streets as a place to sit. Historically speaking, these old men and women who would sit on the street of Jerusalem now, if Zechariah was kind of talking to a 75 or an 80-year-old, uh, these children would have remembered the exile in its consummation, the bloodshed, truly, the pillaging, the pilfering, the literal kidnapping of God's people from the streets of Jerusalem and forceful removal over into the land and empire of Babylon. Likewise, if we're looking at these promises in verses 4, 5, and 6, God talking about the children running and playing, 
The children of this time that we're talking about, that Zechariah might be speaking to or preaching to or writing to their parents, these children wouldn't have even been able to point to Jerusalem on a map. They were born in captivity if they are children coming home to their parents' place, God's promised land. Practically speaking, Jerusalem had changed so much. The people of God finally came home to Jerusalem, but they would have found themselves wondering, and in fact did, and we see it in Scripture, is this even my town? The walls are gone. That house is still burnt. It's all boarded up. There are these different people here. They, they don't even have a temple to worship at. What are they doing? Who are they talking to when they're worshiping? What is this? What are, what are these idols doing? What are these different parts and pieces? Is, is this even my neighborhood? Nothing is like it used to be. Maybe they were thinking, this place has really gone downhill. It's in this feeling, it's, it's in this reality of God's people coming home that this promise begins to bear out God's steadfast and immovable promise, which remains in the midst of those questions. And the promise here, if you noticed, is so ordinary to God that it isn't even marvelous. Did you notice that? If it's marvelous in this remnant's eyes, uh, should it be marvelous in my eye that I'm fulfilling that which I've told you? By the way, way before the 70 years started, I told you this, that, year before that, and the year before that, and on and on and on for decades and hundreds of years I've been promising my people that they would always have a place, that I would always be their God, that they would always be my people. This is not marvelous in my eyes. This is rather quite ordinary. And if I were to use my grandmother once again, sometimes when her car began to sputter and turn off and she was coasting, she wasn't near a gas station. In fact, she just had to coast to the side of the road out of gas. Thankfully, she had AAA. And so she would call AAA and that guy or gal would come with the gas can and fill it up with a little gallon or whatever it was and then we'd make it to the gas pump. And this happened more than once. In fact, it happened more than 10 times. It happened all the time. I can't believe it, but it's true. And yet, God's promises are not like um, me or my grandmother and the miraculous reality of this triple A car mechanic coming and filling our tank up with a gallon or two of gas. Uh, you know, if you think about it from the mechanic's point of view, Filling a car up with gas is actually very ordinary. Oh, you're out of, you ran out of gas again? You know, you're my only customer. You know, I keep coming to you and pouring it in. It's very ordinary, right? There's no complication for the mechanic. And, and just like that, God, with his steadfast and immovable promise, which he gives to us in so many varied ways, is the very same thing. An ordinary move by the Lord to show us who he is and who we are. God's yes is always fulfilled. His I wills are promises. His promises are stacks upon certainty. And as we get this 
ultimate and massive certainty welling up within us from God himself speaking to us, our hope then too wells up and bears out. And that is how God gives us hope through the promise. Uh, you know, uh, I sometimes call uh, this little chapter here, Zechariah chapter 8, especially these verses 4, 5, and 6, and those like it, the poor man's Jeremiah 31. You know Jeremiah 31, the new covenant promises? Uh, God, in Jeremiah 31, speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, lays out what we will see here, which is an incredible reality of the Lord Jesus Christ working on behalf of his people. And what does Jeremiah say? What does God say through Jeremiah? From the least of them to the greatest, to the oldest, I will be their God. I am going to make a new covenant where you're going to wonder, uh, do people know the Lord? And then you won't have to wonder anymore because everyone will know. I will work in their hearts myself. I will hold my truth in their hearts myself. And you will see me working for you. That's the new covenant of God in Jeremiah 31. And we see the very same thing happening here. From young to old, they will all be with me. I'm telling you, they'll be here. I promise. It's the new covenant. It's the reality of the good news of Jesus bearing out. But before we get to the flow of the gospel, let's make it through verses 7 and 8 so we can take it all together before we close. Thirdly, God gives his people hope in the capital H homecoming, verses 7 and 8. God has already provided a physical homecoming for his people. But as is the usual flow of God's word, the lines of physical and spiritual begin to blur. God says, I'm going to bring you home. You say, well, God, Zechariah is speaking to us in Jerusalem. What, you know, what are we... What are we working on here? Are you talking about the remnant who's still far off? Are you, are you talking to us? Is this for us? Where are we, where are we at here? Are, are you promising something heavenly? Is this together? Is it a both and, an either or? Those, those lines of physical and spiritual, they blur. And they have always blurred. And they are always conjoined together. And in fact, molded over on top of one another. Uh, Mary Emeline Isaac and now sort of Carwin and I love Plato. And in my mind, I believe that Plato should be separated into their colors always. Red, green, purple, blue. They shouldn't be combined. And my children don't subscribe to such practices. And they mold and meld them together until it's a beautiful color of puce. And yet, even in the puce, it is a perfect reality of God's word and of the Christian life, of the physical and the spiritual and the blur in between. There is no separation. When you put those suckers back into the can, you're just splitting it up and rolling it up and dropping it in. And it's all the same color. That's the physical and the spiritual blur that we get in the Christian life and in God's word. And then we see some incredible things here then in the blur. Just like that famous psalm, Psalm 103, that uses a similar phrase. Remember, as far as the east is from the west, so far is God going to remove our transgressions from us, right? In other words, all the way, right? You can't, how do you do that? We see a very similar phrase here in the word in verses 7 and 8. He's going to do a similarly miraculous thing by pulling all his people, all of them, the ones on the east, the ones in the west. He's not going to a battlefield over here and then a battlefield over here. He's yanking them all 
into the heavenly place, this holy habitation of Jerusalem where God's people can dwell in God's presence in perfect relationship and status with him. I will be their God and they will be my people. And it's right here, right in that moment when everything collides together and we see the gospel of Jesus Christ come slamming home in full reality. Action, promise, homecoming. The Lord Jesus Christ came. He was active on your behalf. He actively obeyed the laws of God that we could not obey. That is the first part of the gospel. He did something we could not do on this earth, which was obey the law actively. Not only that, but this is God not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped. And he comes in humility, what the old Puritans would say and I agree with, humiliation. This is God humiliating himself actively to come and be human. Fully God and yet now fully man. And so this Jesus actively living a life then actively faces his face towards Jerusalem and towards the cross. And then he goes led like a sheep to the slaughter. Silent. Not bucking the system. For he knows that the wrath of God to be poured out upon him on the cross is what will bring his people home. And so he takes the wrath. He gives us the righteousness. That's where the action, by the way, conquering death, right? If we wanted to, conquering death, rising from the grave, ascending into heaven to reign and rule supreme. And this is where all promises bear out. The yes and amen is in the Lord Jesus Christ as he not only fulfills messianic promises where we see specifically, oh, he's riding on a donkey. The word told us he'd be riding on a donkey. That's Jesus, right? You know, of course he's fulfilling these messianic promises the Christmas stuff, the Easter stuff, but then all throughout all of these promises where how do we know that God is going to be our God and we are going to be his people? Aren't you just as sinful as I am? Aren't you just as weak? Don't you come to the end of the day or even start the day thinking, Lord... <laughs> Do I even have it? Do I even have it today? And he says yes. Because his promise is for those who are far off and near. And it's his promise is that he is the one who is working for us. Of course we are weak. Of course we are sinners. That's why Jesus came. That's why the promises are fulfilled. And that's why we begin to see that hope bear out there. And that right there in that moment is the homecoming. We are sojourners on this earth. We are not supposed to be here. We don't seem right when you compare us to the world because we are not of the world. We are of Christ. And if we look too much like the world, that's a problem because we are not of the world. And yet we are in it right now. And we are living our lives and there is pain and there is suffering and there is tumult and there is war and there is death and there is frustration. There is confusion. There is all of the stuff. And God has put us here in the moment not only to receive hope 
but to be the ambassadors of the Lord Jesus and to extend hope. Are you a hope extender? Guy Castle's teaching uh, from Job this morning in Sunday school, teaching on what a friend is. <laughs> Very convicting. He agreed, I agreed with him when he said, I'm not sure if, if I've ever been a good friend now that I've seen what the measuring rod is, which is the Lord Jesus Christ who calls us friend. But that is who we have been called to be, dear Christians, the ones who extend hope, real hope, lasting hope, hope that can transcend all of the difficult stuff. Whatever it is in our own lives, in other people's lives, in society, in our state, in our nation, internationally, wherever we are and wherever we find ourselves, are we about the Lord Jesus and the hope that he instills, grows, causes to bud and flower and that we then give. That's the life of a Christian. That's the sharing of the good news, what our denomination is founded on, the free offer of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you come? Would you believe in the Savior of the world? Jesus, he is mine, and I cannot stand without him. That is the moment for us. That is the moment for Centennial. That is who we are to be about and how we are to be about it. God gives his people hope. We will see it visibly right after I pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truths. Thank you for giving us hope, a sure assurance that you will do what you said you will do. And God, you said you'd save us. You said you'd bring us home. And you are about that work. And so God, thank you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.